you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'm going to invite you to go to the Gospel of John with me this morning. But maybe a little bit of a surprise to you is I don't want you to go to John chapter 1. I'd like you to go to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I want to introduce this book to you. And John had a very peculiar way in which he did it. He writes his entire gospel and he waits till almost the very end to tell you why he wrote it or what was the purpose of it. So you kind of got to read the back of the book to find out why he wrote the book. And so that's what we're going to do. So this week we're going to look at the purpose of John writing the gospel that bears his name. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to look at John himself, this apostle that is, I think, the most misunderstood of all the disciples. He is often called the beloved disciple. That is even how he refers to himself in here. But literature and art of the eras, I think, have gotten John extremely wrong. He's always painted as the one that's right next to Jesus Christ. He's often expressed, Michelangelo, I think, got it completely wrong. He shows him as this kind of paled-faced, effeminate, kind of weakling of a guy. But if you actually read the Gospels, you'll remember that according to Matthew and Luke, they were called the sons of thunder, him and his brother. They wanted to pray down thunder down on people. He was extremely even aggressive. And so next week, we're going to look at how did this aggressive kind of self-centered man become known as the apostle of love and was so endeared, was the last apostle alive of the 12 and was the great pastor of the church at Ephesus and wrote the book of Revelation. But as you look at that, I want to ask you to draw your attention to a couple of ideas. I want you to think about people you have met in your life that really changed your life had a profound impact on your life. People that you have met that you instantly remember the face, that time, that time you interacted with them. Stop and think of all the people that you've met in your lifetime, regardless of how old you are. Those people you've been introduced to. Maybe there's people that you're thinking about right now, those that you wanted to meet or you hoped you could meet. Is there a person or a time in your life when you just say to yourself or those around you, that was a hallmark moment. That marked a pivotal point in my life. Now, there are several people like that for me. One is the obvious one, and she's going to hate that I bring her up, and so you can all pity her for this. But obviously, one of the most pivotal people in my life is Debbie. She's my wife. I've known Debbie. I got to meet Debbie for the first time when I was five years old. She had a profound impact on my life, even at five, because I threw rocks at her. I mean, she just left. And that's how five-year-olds tell girls they like them. They hurt them. They throw rocks at them and go, don't you know how much I love you? I've known Debbie practically all my life. We started dating at 16 when she took a chance a very broken and rebellious teenage boy. And I remember when I was 19, my then-girlfriend Deb and I got to go to Barring Park, and I had reached this point in my life where I really felt things and a way and felt safe and a way around Debbie that I'd never felt around any other human being. And so I took her to this place in Barring Park, and just recently we took our daughter there, and I sat her down on these steps that lead down into this little river, where the river runs through the, the, the park, and I told her that I wanted to tell her a story about a little boy. And there I gave her my life story. I told her basically all of the things that had happened to me and all the things that I had done to others, things that I had never shared with anybody else, and I told her, and I gave her all of the nasty side of my life. And I'll never forget, because Debbie, very, being very quiet, had looked down most of the time while I was speaking to her. And when I finished and there was that awkward silence and just the sound of distant children playing and that river bubbling down through over the rocks. And she looked up at me and this tear rolled down her cheek. And she said the most beautiful words I have never forgotten. I still love you. And I knew that day that I would marry her. I just knew it. And we've been together now. We just celebrated last month our 24th wedding anniversary. 
So we're in our 25th year, and all three of our kids are here, and I've told them they've got an entire year to plan what a momentous event and party that will be thrown for us by them at their expense for our 25th wedding anniversary. But you know, yeah, no, not Tim Hortons, Bruce, not Tim Hortons. There's a second person in my life that changed my life. He's a guy by the name of Dr. John White Jr. Many of you maybe don't know him. He was a pastor in Michigan for many, many years, and he was the best-known missions consultant for ABWE, that great mission agency that still functions today. Just in 2014, Dr. White died. He was a wonderful man. He was winsome. I met him at a camp ministry in Maine, and I invited him to come to Grace Baptist Church, my last ministry, and speak for us there, and he did an incredible job. He was one of the smartest men I knew. He had four degrees. He spoke nine languages. He worked for the CIA of the United States because he was fluent in Aramaic and Arabic and Hebrew and all these things. And he was often employed by the U.S. government to uh, interpret different things that they bantered back and forth amongst different terrorist cells and stuff like that. In fact, when he came to Charlottetown, I was shocked because he had his own satellite phone and he actually had a GPS device inserted into him so that the government would know where he was 24 hours a day, wherever. And so this was all this real kind of James Bondy stuff for me in my late 20s, early 30s. At the time that I met him, I had just taken on the senior pastorate at Grace Baptist Church. And as any church that's been around for a while, it was going through some changes and it was going through some flux. And to be honest with you, he arrived at probably the lowest point of my ministry. I was very afraid There were a lot of people that loved me and there were a lot of people that didn't love me because I was taken over for the pastor that had been there for almost 15 years. And right at the time he arrived, the second largest Baptist church in all of Atlantic Canada had contacted me and said, we want you to come be our pastor. In fact, they called me 13 times. They sent people from that church over to PEI to take me out for dinner. I went to that church and preached to 700 people. And then they sent me this whole uh, proposal where they offered me my salary, told me I could hire any four other pastors and set up my staff any way I wanted. And I really, really wanted to go. But I wanted somebody to tell me it was okay to go. And so I was taking Dr. White in from the place where we had him staying into Grace Baptist, and I was telling him my story and telling him how this church was pursuing me and how I needed to know what was God's will and how would I know if it was right to go. And in a very 86-year-old way, because that's how old he was, he said, listen, whippersnapper, pull the van over. So I pulled the van over. He said, I got one question for you. It's a yes or no answer. Okay. Have you done everything God told you to do at this church? And I started to give him my, well, no, now, doctor, no, 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 no. It's a yes or no answer. And I thought for a second, and I said, well, no. He said, well, then shut up, stop your whining, start this van, and bring me into church, and get the job done God's called you to do here at Grace Baptist. (laughs) Okay. I then had literally the best 12 years of my life in ministry and saw God do things with me, with my family, and with Grace Baptist Church that I could have only imagined possible. And so there are these people that have this profound influence on your life. So if you'll allow me, I'd like to introduce you this morning to... Jesus. I'd like to introduce you to this gentleman. I'd like to introduce you to someone that's far smarter, far greater, more powerful and mighty, and to be honest, greater than any human being that ever lived. But if you actually study his life, he was born poor. He was born into scandal. His parents were literally nobodies. He was the oldest in his family, but they were not a close family, especially through most of his young and adult life. In fact, his own parents, Mary and Joseph, were often confused by him. His siblings were somewhat embarrassed by him and, to be honest, a little ashamed. His siblings doubted his claims because he was really a half-brother. 
They even made fun of him at times, and we're going to find this in John's gospel. And truth be told, though later, they would bond with him in a way that would transcend biology and family blood to something stronger and by far more eternal. He was both loved and hated. Controversy seemed to follow him everywhere. He did the impossible, and everyone, and I do mean everyone who met him, was forever changed. Everybody who met Jesus reacted to him. No one just went, huh? Everybody reacted to him. He seemed to know things. He had a way about himself. He could do things and would say things that no one else had ever said, or if they did, nobody ever said it like he did with the authority he did. And he made outrageous statements. He said things like, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world. He said once that he was the I am, making himself equal with God, and people didn't like it. Then he said he was the door and the good shepherd. He said he was the resurrection and the life. And in John 14, he said he was the way, the truth, and the life. He said he was going away, but then coming back. He claimed to be the king of kings, but wouldn't let people call him king. He healed people. He controlled nature. Demons and the supernatural were afraid of him, yet kings and prefects and regences both feared him and were fascinated by him. Now, the religious, they hated him. The general public and population later in his life rallied and literally protested for his death. He endured six trials, three civil and three religious. He was mocked, spit upon, beaten, tortured. One criminal challenged him, another submitted to him. At his death, his mother cried. Leading up to his death, his friends fled him. His closest friend denied he knew him three times. Amazingly, when he died after hours on a cross naked, where soldiers brutalized him and the public scorned him and the religious laughed at him, and as his mother mourned him, one disciple watched. Of course, maybe you know I'm talking about Jesus. This is who I've been talking about the whole time. And maybe many of you realize that this one disciple who watched to actually be there as Jesus dies was John the Apostle. I don't know about you, but I would say that John was obviously impacted and influenced and forever changed by knowing Jesus. He was never the same afterwards. And again, congregation, friends, guests, visitors, would you allow me to introduce you to Jesus, or better stated, allow me to point us all to Jesus as John would like us to know him. And if you'll indulge me for just a few minutes, I want to show you the most powerful video I've ever watched about my friend and my savior, Jesus. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine 
of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's mocking! That's mocking! Amen. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Well, you're all pathetic. <laughs> that makes me want to do one of these, all right? That's my king. That's who Jesus is. This is the one who had the influence that he did on John. So if I wanted to put this whole sermon in a sentence, this is the thing I want you to take away with you this morning. John in his gospel presents the real Jesus and what he did so that we can know he is God and that we must believe in him to have the only life worth living, a life that only gets better for eternity. The entire sermon that I want to give you this morning, I believe this is what John is trying to tell us through 21 chapters of his gospel, is that the real Jesus is this Jesus and what he did and so that you can know that just Jesus is the Son of God. That we must believe in him to have the only life worth living. And that's a life that only gets better for eternity. And to do this, as I said, we've actually got to go to the end of the gospel. See, John gives us the biography of Jesus and waits till the end, as I've told you, to give us the purpose. So let's look at John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. And John basically says, here's the reason I've said everything I've done. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Jesus did a whole bunch of other stuff, and he did it in front of us, and I didn't write any of it down. But 31, but these things are written, what I have written in these 20 chapters are written so that you may believe, now notice the sequence, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's important. And here's the result of his purpose. If you see what he's written about, you understand and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing, you, you may have life in his name. So very first thing this morning, I want us to notice that John says, I have written something so you will see the signs of Jesus. I want you to see the signs of Jesus. We're going to go on a journey. I don't know how long it'll take us. 
But we're going to go on a journey through this gospel and we're going to see the signs of Jesus, these conversations with Christ. John records more of the words of Jesus than anybody else. He interacts with all kinds of people and he talks to them and and tells them all kinds of things and answers their questions and he wrestles through life with them. And John is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Something I'll get more into next week. But we have the wonderful blessing of God's completed word with these four different perspectives, these four biographies, if you will, of Jesus. Matthew tells us about King Jesus. He's the king of the Jews. Mark tells us about the servant Jesus. The word in Mark is immediately or straight, straight with or straightforward or straight away. He's a man of action. He's the servant Jesus. Luke tells us about the man Jesus. He's the son of man But John tells us about the God-man. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is who you meet in John's gospel. And any attempt to study God's word, the reason that I've chosen the theme for Calvary Baptist in 2016 as the year of the Bible, the reason I am desperate to get everyone to learn it and love it and live out the word of God is that when you do, you get to know Jesus. You get to know him better. What's that old wonderful hymn of the faith? More about Jesus would I know. And friends, listen to me. If you'll go on this journey and study John, If you'll get into a life group and in life itself, I promise you, Christ will get bigger and bigger and bigger. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. And one of his most favorite and, and popular of his novels is the Chronicles of Narnia. And in his chronicles, Aslan the lion is the Christ figure. And there's this wonderful dialogue between Lucy and Aslan. Aslan is there and Lucy is gazing at Aslan and notices gazing and looking carefully and closely. And Aslan says, welcome, child. And Lucy says, you're bigger. You're bigger. And Aslan says, that's because you are older, little one. Not because you are, Lucy says. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. See, when you get to know Christ, he gets bigger and bigger. Have you ever met someone who was big when you were small and now you're grown up? And you you look at them and go, "I, I thought you were bigger. I remember you being bigger. And then that someone says, well, the last time you saw me, you were only up to my knees. But Aslan says, and he tells us of Christ, no, the difference between Jesus is no matter how big you get, in fact, the older and the bigger you get, Christ gets bigger. He'll always get bigger. And so I want you to break down what John has just told us in John chapter 20, 30 and 31. Jesus did many signs, all kinds of things. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 21, look at what John says at the very last of this. He says in verse 24 of 21, this is disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. Now notice what he says. He bursts into this massive statement. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Is that not a massive view of Christ by John? who, by the way, had only known him for about three and a half years. And he says, in three and a half years of what we know, he did so many things, I don't think books could contain what he did. And so John says, there are these signs. And what he did write, these signs, he told us are there for a definitive purpose. In these words, you actually see his outline of purpose. John is declaring his point If you read this book, if you take notice of the signs that I have written, they're there for a reason. And if you believe, and if you believe, then you'll have life. And so I want you to take a look at these signs that John talks about. If you take the time to read John's gospel, 
in the New Testament. Literally, he wrote John, the Gospel of John. He wrote those little epistles called 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he wrote that massive book at the very end of your Bible of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. But if you read all of his writings, you'll see that for him, the word sign is a very important word. And it's, and it's the word he uses for miracle, even though there are at least three other words for miracle. Okay? If you take the time, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, verse 19, where Peter is reciting the Old Testament, he uses the Greek word teres, which is translated in English as wonder. The idea that something will or has happened outside of normal events and you're wondered at them, you're, you're in shock and awe of these events. Then there's this other Greek word called dunamis, where we get our modern English word for dynamite. Okay, this word stresses the power revealed in the performance of a miracle. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus talks about the mighty works that were used in front of all these cities, and that if these mighty works had been done in front of the, the Sodom and Gomorrah, and these, they would have repented. And he calls them mighty works. And finally, this is funny too, there's the Greek word paradoxon, where we get our English word for paradox. And this is used when an, a miracle contradicted nature. So think about when the sun is turned back for Hezekiah or when Jesus turns water into wine. It seemed to do something where it went, it went against the normal of life. But John uses the word sign. And the reason is if you want someone to notice something, not the supernatural deed itself, don't wonder at the deed itself or the supernatural power, not even how peculiar the event was, but that the deed itself was meant to testify of spiritual truth or reality. And you will see this played out in John's gospel. Remember in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, when she's with Jesus and he says, if you drink of the water I'll give you, you'll never thirst again. And she's like, oh, wow, well, give me some of that water. And then he starts to tell her, no, 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 if you drink, I, I, am, he, I am he who's talking to you. Well, she gets it when she goes back to Samaria and she goes into the village. And what does she say to all of her friends and maybe even all of those who were her enemies because she had, what, five husbands and living with a guy? And she says, come, I found the Messiah, the one who told me all I've ever done. See, she wasn't wrapped up in the miracle. She got the sign. But two chapters later in John chapter 6, you have a whole crowd of people that were there when Jesus fed the 5,000. And when we get there, you'll remember he gets up at night and he disappears. Everybody gets up. Everybody panics. They all go looking for him and they find him. They're like, Rabbi, teacher, where were you? And he outs them. He says, you're only following me because you think I'll treat you to McDonald's every day. You're not really following me for me. And then he says, I am the bread of life. And then he says something really radical. If you will eat of me. And then if you read the rest of chapter six, everybody got grossed out. And they're like, eat of you. And then it says, everybody stopped following him that day. And Jesus actually has this interplay with Peter and he looks at his and says, will you stop following me? And Peter says, we've, we've given up everything. And so this is the difference between seeing the sign and not seeing the sign. So if you think of this, plus notice John says that these signs he picked are picked where many others were done in the presence of the disciples. So he's not saying, I've just thought these things up. He's not saying, I had really bad pizza one night and I wrote this down. No, he's saying these signs and many others like them were done in the presence of his disciples. In other words, there were witnesses. These are not his imagination. This isn't fiction. This isn't him thinking it up. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15? Beginning in verse 9, Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. Notice the condition. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, now notice this, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So folks, let me say by way of commercial, you can't rip Jesus and the Bible apart. You want to know Jesus, you turn to the Bible. And so John tells us that he chooses some of these miracles as signs of Jesus, as important and definitive signs. John chapter 2. In fact, you're going to notice that the word, the number 7 is very prominent in John's gospel. In these seven great miracles that he talks about in John chapter 2, there's the changing of water into wine. In John 4, he heals this nobleman's son who is not present. He's in distance away. In John 5, he heals the impotent man who's been like this for a prolonged period of time. In John 6, there's the feeding of the 5,000. Later on in John 6, he walks on water. In John chapter 9, he heals the man born blind, of which that's an incredible sign. And then, of course, John 11, which is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And what do these miracles then signal to us about Jesus? Well, think about it. Think about the quality factor in the wine. Remember that the key part of that narrative is that the master says, the, the people come to the master and say, why did you save the best to last? They recognize that something amazing happened and there was a better quality. Remember in the nobleman's son, distance and space are involved. The son is not present. He's not there. The time factor with the impotent man, have you ever suffered over a prolonged period of time? What about the ability to provide and, and having the quantity to provide it when you think about the feeding of the 5,000? Or what about Jesus' mastery over nature and natural law in walking on water? And what about his compassion and how he is master of circumstances, even misfortune when the man was born blind and the question is, who sinned, this man or his parents? And what is obvious, right? His power over death. So let's add up these seven miraculous signs and see what John wants you and I to see. How many of us in this room would like to be in control and have power over our quality of life? How many of us would like to have control over our quality of life? How many of us, especially if your parents, would like to have control of space and distance? If your children have moved out or your children are going through something or you're sending your child to school and you just long, I wish I could be there. I wish I could watch over them. I wish I knew what was happening in their life. And you wish you had control over time and space. What about time? How many of us wish we could turn back time or speed up time or freeze time? How many of us have wanted to provide as much as something was needed? How many of you wanted to provide for your kids or your parents or a loved one? How often would you like to have control and make sense of misfortune? I went out for supper last night with Jeff and Jennifer and we were chatting about the way the world acts and this reporter, and has been very popular in the news, had written or tweeted about how he lost his dog and his dog was very important to him. And how all of his friends, everybody reacted and everybody started writing back to him how sorry they were for him and how much that they were sad that he lost his dog. Then later he wrote a story about all the children that were being slaughtered in Syria and nobody said a word to him. And his conclusion was this. If I had wrote an article about all of the dogs in Syria being slaughtered and butchered, would I have gotten more of a response from humanity than what humanity heard that human beings were being slaughtered? How, how crazy is our world? But how often do we want to fix? One of the most powerful things about 9-11 that every one of you, if you haven't yet, will probably sometime throughout the day, if you watch any television, you will see an image of dust-covered people, people with this blank look on their face as they're in shock and, and, and all of these things. And we are drawn and we see this and we feel and then we realize I am powerless to do anything about it. And so John says, 
How much do we want to control all of these things, especially death? How many of us would like to stop death? Debbie and I are walking through the pain of this. We have two dear saints that we love so much. Both of these individuals have been almost like second grandparents to our children. And just in the last week, we've heard that one had a stroke and they discovered a tumor on his brain and he's going to die any day. And then another dear lady who has outlived two husbands, all of her children and one of her grandchildren had a fall and will likely pass away in the next 24 to 48 hours. And I have thought myself many times, oh, that we could stop death. Oh, that I could stop it. But John is here yelling out for us all to see and hear and take notice. Hey, world, hey, everywhere you and I want power and control, and no, we don't have it, Jesus does and did. Jesus has the power. Jesus did it. Everywhere we struggled, Jesus didn't. Everywhere we failed, Jesus succeeded. Everywhere we wish we could, Jesus has. Our daily grind didn't trouble him at all. Oh, he experienced it. He felt it. John 11 tells us when he was at the graveside of Lazarus and he saw everybody mourning and Mary and Martha were crying and it says, Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35, but his tears were not helpless or hopeless. They weren't without ability. He felt our pain. He felt our helplessness. He felt our hopelessness. He feels our inability. And then he shows us himself and his power and his purpose. And he says, I am God. I am here. I have come to you to show you God, to make a way for you to be right with God. And when you see me for who I am, life is never the same. That's my king. That's who Jesus is. And John gives us these seven signs and he'll cap it all off with the greatest sign ever in the history of mankind, Jesus' resurrection. But everything in life, when you are presented with a sign or a proposition, you have one of two reactions, don't you? Acceptance or rejection. And so when John chapter 20, 30, John shows us all throughout his gospel, those who accepted Jesus and those who rejected. So the question then becomes, number two, will you believe in Jesus? He wants you to see the signs of Jesus. But then obviously in verse 30, he says, will you believe in Jesus? John tells us that the reason he wrote his gospel, this account of Jesus is so that people like you and I would believe, now notice something, would believe in Jesus. Look look at what he says. He says, I write these to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He wants us to prove, he says, these signs prove that Jesus is the Christ. He wants you to believe, and believe is a big deal to John. Do you know he uses this word 98 times in the gospel? 98 times he tells you to believe or to trust or to commit. See, that's what believing means. If you believe, you will trust in, you will commit to. See, man, John, as we're going to learn next week, was a man of truth. He was a real black and white guy. He uses the word truth in all of his writings 45 times. And you'll learn about that more next week and you'll learn about it in your life groups. But here in our passage, John says, look, you either accept or reject Jesus. And the purpose of my writing, hand selecting these seven signs, is to move you from rejection to acceptance. John says, listen, I got a goal here. And it's both apologetic and evangelistic. I want to show you that Jesus is who he claimed to be what, and what, that what he did wasn't just a circus act. It wasn't a fluke. He's not a freak of nature. He wasn't some fraud doing a magic trick. No, Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. So will you commit to him? Will you trust him? Now think about those words. Commit means to give yourself to him. Have you given yourself to Jesus? Now, come on now. Think about it. See, I think the problem in our modern church is we have just enough Jesus as we like. Jesus is like going to Baskin Robbins or to the candy store. We want to take a few licks of all the lollipops, but we never want to buy one. Do you really, have you really committed to Jesus? 
Do you really trust in him? Trust is to believe. Believe is to trust. What did David say in Psalm 20 verse 7? He says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Notice he, he didn't trust in power. He didn't trust in his armies. He said, that's what other people do. What or who do you trust in and thus are committed to? Are you, are you trusting in money? Some of you here are. Whether you want to admit it or not, you trust in money. Some of you trust in your family. Well, my family will always be there for me. No, they won't. Some of you are trusting in your possessions. Some of you trust in work. You find your value and your identity in work. If work was taken from you, life would be meaningless. Some of you trust in power. You're trying to get it, and what little you have, you're trying to hang on to. Some of you maybe are trusting in retirement. I work hard, I do all this because one day I'll be able to rest. I wish I could tell you about how many people retire and then die because they don't have purpose. Some of you trust in people's opinion. Some of you trust in control. Some of you trust in pleasure. And I will tell you the new idol of the 21st century is our sexual identity or lack thereof. I'm a guy, I'm a girl, I don't know what I am or who I am, and you can't, and I will hang on to this because I'm trusting in how I define myself. And you know the problem with that? You can't even trust yourself. Because the greatest thing in life, or the hardest thing in life you'll ever do is be honest with yourself. You lie more to yourself than you lie to anybody. And so John 3, 16 those who believe in Jesus, John 14, 24, John 14, 6, uh, where Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Will you commit yourself to Jesus and trust in him? Remember, Thomas is the greatest lesson. And John, Thomas answered him, Lord, my, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Will you accept him? Because there are consequences if you reject him. If you reject him, well, John 16 says this, Jesus says to disciples, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Everybody knows John 3.16, but people fail to read verse 17, where John said, Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you see how Jesus said that? And what John says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But if you receive him, if you believe in him, if you trust him, then John 3.16 makes sense. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, that's commits to him and trusts in him will have everlasting life. John 6 makes sense. John 8 makes sense. John 10 makes sense. John 13 to 16 does where Jesus interacts with them. John's prayer or Jesus' prayer in John 17 becomes so much more than words of comfort or confirmation or courage inspiring. You see, John is telling you and me that Jesus is not just a person. He's not just a strong fella. He's not just a mighty fella. He's not just an authoritative fella. He's not just a smart fella, but he is the most smart and mighty and powerful and authoritative. He is what it all is. He is the only son of God. He came to show us the Father, but he also came and then make a way to the Father. Hence why John 14, 6 is so important. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. And that's why I want to tell you, any way you want to live, young people, listen, you can choose any way to live. Older person who is cynical or skeptical, any way you want to live and you will get to God. Don't let any preacher or anybody tell you, you can live any way you want and you get to God. As judge, there's only one way to get to God as Father. And that's through Jesus Christ. That's through Jesus Christ. 
He is the Christ. That is the word for Messiah. He has come to show us the Father. Jesus came to show us ourselves, show us our greatest needs and our faults, show us how to live, show us how to be right, show us what's wrong with us in this world, show us that this is not as good as it gets, show us that how we can be helped and that we need help. But he's also the Son of God. He's not just our Messiah. He shows us the Father. And so John's purpose and my desire is that we must read and mark and learn the Bible. It's that leads you and me to a decision of faith. And then very quickly, see the signs of Jesus. You have to believe in Jesus. But finally, you will live with the consequences of your choice. You will live with the consequences of your choice. Look at verse 31. That you have, sorry, that he says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by leaving, that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, first, let me give you the bad news. There's a negative part of this. Jesus talks about it over and over again. John records it. In John chapter 3, 17, John chapter 6, if you believe not that I am he, you will die in your sins. John chapter 8, if you will not believe, you're condemned already. You'll die in your sin. You'll not live with Jesus eternally. You won't know peace or life. Life will never make sense. And well, you should eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. Why do you think Hollywood Western so often said by the villain as he was dying, I'll see you in hell? Why do you think the world so often says, go to hell? And it's funny, tragically so, that that's exactly what Jesus means when he says in John 8, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There's a consequence to not believing. And so this is exactly what John is trying to plead with you not to do. Don't reject but see Jesus as God. See him for who he is and why he's here. See what your problem is. Our sin, our rejection of God has turned the world and creation and relationships and trust and commitment and everything's on its head. And you know this to be true. I don't need to give you examples of this. Everyone in this room has experienced it. But listen to the words of Jesus in John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. Notice why. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is life eternal or eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, believe is 98 times. Trust is 45 times. Life 47 times in 39 different verses, John talks about life. He tells us that Jesus has life, that Jesus is life, that Jesus gives life, that Jesus is eternal life, and that you have a satisfying life. That's why Jesus said he was the bread of life. He was the eternal spring of water to the woman at the well, and she would never thirst again. And we can believe and have life because Jesus is real. He's come to us to show us and glorify God and we can have contact with him and it's eternal. You want to know the difference between Christianity and Islam, between Christianity and secular humanism, between Christianity and Hinduism and Buddhism and all the other isms of the world? Only in Christianity, when you believe, you get God for eternity. If you are a devout follower of Islam, you never get Allah. He is always absent, but in Jesus, you get him. You get him and access to him. And is it any wonder when you trust him and commit to him and live for him with eternity that you can understand that this is what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? Because I don't have to fear it anymore. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why he says in Philippians 3, I've learned how to abound and how to be without, but I'm content. That's why he says in Philippians 4, to rejoice in the Lord. But listen to what John writes in Revelation 22. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, Jesus, 
have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star and the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, come. Do you see the, the consistency of John's writing? Do you see how he writes this over and over again? See, listen, friends, the Bible never asks for you to believe without giving you reasons, proof, and witness confirmation. John tells us that by no means did he give us the full picture of Jesus. But that what we have here is more than good enough. And with the resurrection as the crown jewel of the signs, all is confirmed over and over again in the resurrection. And when you believe in him, we get life, eternal life. Our faith, our life will grow and grow and grow. We are saved when we believe. And remember how we started? Remember Lucy back with Aslan? The older and bigger you get, the bigger God gets. To know Jesus is to love him. To love him is to love what he loves. To love what he loves is to strive for that. Peter said, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So, have you met Jesus? Before you go, can I introduce him to you? What's your response to these signs? Listen, I don't care what CNN or Fox News or CTV or CBC says. There is more recorded documentation of the person and work of Jesus Christ than any figure in history. What will you do with him? So what will you do with Jesus? And Mark Jones puts it this way. Your answers to these questions ultimately determine your life's purpose and destiny. So if eternal life means knowing Christ, we cannot afford to be ignorant about the one who is chiefest among 10,000. This is Jesus. That's my king. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the power of your word. And again, I beg of you that my friends and my family, my church family, our visitors, our guests, well, I've heard a much better sermon than I am capable of preaching. And Lord, I pray that they would know that my enthusiasm today, my, my boyish nature is not an act. Lord, I believe in you. You're my king. You took this broken and rebellious and hell-bound sinner and you saved me and you didn't have to. And I believe in you. And Father, my desire is that every man and woman here would know Jesus, not just know about him, but know him because you are mighty to save. And don't let anybody leave here and not know you, Father God. Don't let the broken go without find healing, the hurting without comfort, the doubting without assurance. Oh, Father God, may we have been changed today because we just got introduced to your son. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.